Good morning. My name is Justin Sitzma, and I'm on the pastoral staff at Courtright Church, and it's my privilege to be sharing with you from Ephesians chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn over there, and we're also going to be in Acts chapter 21. So uh, if you're holding a physical Bible, you might want to kind of hold both uh, spots. We're going to be mainly in Ephesians 3 uh, with a little detour in 21, in Acts 21. So there's this common trope that often happens in uh, mystery movies or TV shows or novels too. I don't really need, I don't really read mystery novels, so I don't know this for a fact, but I've seen it definitely in movies and TV shows where the whole time you are spent guessing who did the crime, who killed the person, who stole the precious jewel or whatever the mystery is. And literally within the final minutes of the film or the show, the puzzle pieces all of a sudden come together due to the detective or the investigator or whoever. They have this epiphany where they realize everything. They examine some minute detail that was missed, which actually turned out to be some critical plot points, and we just glazed over it like some sucker. Uh, this is a common occurrence when we... Uh, read or observe this kind of media. We could call this kind of moment the great reveal. It's where everything comes together. The puzzle pieces all fit together, where everything just makes sense all of a sudden. This is what Paul does for us in Ephesians chapter 3. He gives us a glimpse at God's great reveal, that it is God's doing is a really important fact of that, that it's not some epiphany that we can uh, understand of our own self. It's not that we're not smart people. We're all smart people in some ways, but uh, rather this is an unveiling by God. There's a lot of incredible stuff here that I don't want us to miss out. So I want us just to take a moment and pause and listen uh, so that we can still ourselves before God so that we don't miss out any of this amazing passage of scripture. So would you pray with me? God, we are so grateful for the way in which you have revealed yourself to us through the person and the work of Jesus. May we hear these words and not lack understanding. May we receive them and live them out so that we can proclaim your gospel message to ourselves, to our friends and our family, and to the world. We pray this in your name. Amen. So let's read this incredible passage from Ephesians chapter 3, starting at verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit uh, to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. 
I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things." His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. This is the word of the Lord. So Paul starts by reminding us that he is in prison. He writes that while in, he writes this whole book while in chains. And specifically, he says to the Ephesians, which are a largely Gentile or non-Jewish, he says to them that it is for their sake that he is in prison. And if you skip down to the last verse we read, verse 13, you see something very similar. He says, Do not be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. What is he saying here? Paul is saying that he is in jail because he was willing to lay down his life to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And in fact, this, there's a specific incident that led him to jail. And for that, I want to flip over quickly to Acts chapter 21. This will help us understand the context in which Paul is writing and the, uh, the reason for why he is in prison, which is, you know, critical to our understanding of this letter. So just for the sake of brevity, um, and just so that we kind of get the general idea, I'm going to read a few verses starting at Acts 21, 17, and then we're going to, I'm going to unpack a couple things and then a few more verses. So Acts 21, 17. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. They said, then they said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed and all of them are zealous for the law. They then go on to express Paul, their deep concern with Paul about him not being, uh, kind of not forcing these new Jewish, or sorry, these new Gentile converts, rather, to follow Jewish laws. And they end up with a bit of a list of what they would like these new Gentile converts to be doing. So what started with them kind of praising God, like, this is incredible, this is so good, we're so proud of the work you're doing, Paul, it devolves, though, into legalism and agitation toward Paul's leniency with these new converts following, not following uh, Jewish laws and regulations. So Paul relents a little bit here. He, he uh, plays their game a little bit. Uh, and so he takes the Gentile believers that were traveling with him and he takes them uh, to be part uh, of, a pu- of a purification ritual. Uh, and Paul then goes to the temple and he tells the leaders there uh, that they have undergone this uh, cleanliness ritual, which takes about seven days. And then we pick up at verse 27. 
When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia, um, that's Ephesus, by the way, uh, they were likely people that, uh, they were Jewish people that had come for a festival, possibly Pentecost, they believe. Um, so these people from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up this whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city where Paul had, and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. So these men, they, uh, these men from, Ephesian, from Ephesus, they recognized a man by the name of Trophimus uh, who was traveling with Paul. They lied, they were deceitful, and they lied about Paul having brought him into the temple so that they could have him arrested. There was no evidence that Paul did this. And from that moment onward, Paul basically spends the rest of his life being shuffled around from city prison to city prison to speak to the religious leaders and the Roman leaders, and eventually... He was executed, presumably uh, and traditionally by decapitation uh, at the hands of Emperor Nero. So Paul's drive, what got Paul out of bed every day was to bring the message of Jesus to the Gentiles. He committed his life to it and he lost his life for it. And the impetus to all this was this great mystery that was revealed to him that he spoke about in Ephesians uh, 3, verse 3. The idea of, this, of the mystery here, this word mystery, is not about something that's incomprehensible or obscure. It's simply about something being made known. Paul says that the mystery was made known by revelation. And the Greek word here, it actually sounds a lot like our word for apocalypse. And when you hear that word apocalypse, um, you have all sorts of images kind of run into our head about the end of the world and kind of, you know, uh, destruction and all this kind of stuff. But the word apocalypse, it simply means revelation. That's the word that Paul uses to describe this mystery being revealed. It's to, it describes being something being revealed or having a mystery unveiled. You could talk about, uh, you know, the end of a mystery movie. Um, there's an apocalypse. There's a revelation. Paul had an apocalyptic moment when he was on the road to Damascus. Jesus, he showed up. He blinded him and told him that he was going to be the one to proclaim Jesus, the good news of Jesus, to the nations. This was an earth-shattering, apocalyptic moment for him. It changed his most basic understanding of who God was. What was covered was now unveiled. The mystery of God's plan was apocalypsed to Paul or revealed. And what was revealed was the glorious truth that because of what Jesus Christ has done, the categories of who receives grace and who doesn't receive grace have been destroyed. 
So that, so now all, no matter what nationality, race, ethnicity, gender, or social standing, no matter what, all can receive this free gift of God. And that's the gift that Paul talked about so beautifully in Ephesians chapter 2, which we've spent the past two weeks on. And the implications of what Paul speaks about here is enormous, not simply for the church, but I truly believe that if we can grab hold of this idea, that it will make a difference across our world. So there are three areas I'd like to zero in on. The first is that this unveiled mystery reveals what I'm going to call the multi-ethnic kingdom of God. The second is that the unveiled mystery reveals the far-reaching nature of the gospel. And the third is that the unveiled mystery reveals the deep fellowship available to us with God. So let's start with the unveiled mystery revealing the multi-ethnic kingdom. This was a radical revelation for first century Jews, and it is still a radical revelation today. So for centuries, uh, the Jewish people, they kept their faith wrapped up deeply in their ethnic identity. Uh, They conflated most of the time, not all the time, but they conflated their faith and their ethnic identity. You see examples where that doesn't happen. I'm thinking of people uh, like Rahab in the Old Testament in the book of Joshua, uh, where there is this, uh, this moment where a non-Jew is brought into the fold. But by and large, uh, there is this uh, conflation, this confusion that uh, our ethnic identity and our faith is the same. They're intertwined. They kept seeing them as inseparable. This is why when Paul gives this report of all that has been happening with the Gentile followers of Jesus in Acts 22, they quickly jump down Paul's throat about being too lenient about them uh, not observing Jewish rites and rituals. This is why also Paul in Galatians chapter 2, he uh, calls out Peter. Uh, you know, Peter, the disciple of Jesus, the apostle of Jesus, um, he calls out Peter, uh, who was showing favoritism to Jews, and he was being hypocritical in his expectations of Gentile converts. And yet, for the sake of the Gentiles knowing Jesus, Paul set aside many of these rites and rituals that, that Jews held dear. I'm thinking particularly of circumcision, and food preferences. And you see that play out throughout the book of Acts where they, the, the Jewish believers wrestle with this about what uh, new Gentile converts should or should not follow. But Paul was decidedly against enforcing these things upon Gentile believers. There is something critical for us to listen to and take in here. We can say, and this is kind of very relevant to the, some, the conversations that we've been having, we can say that we have a heart for racial reconciliation. We can say things like, I am anti-racist. That's the phrase that a lot of us have been using these days. We can say that we celebrate different cultures. But the question that we have to ask ourselves is, are we willing to get out of our comfort zones to do so? Are we willing to lay down some of our preferences. 
A friend of mine, uh, his name is Michael uh, Harris, not the former premier, Michael Harris. Uh, he's a worship leader here in town. He's a preacher. He is a radio host, and he also happens to be black. Him and I are actually in the next few weeks planning on uh, filming a conversation about this, the, a lot of the conversations that are happening right now. And I look forward to doing that, but I will never forget about a conversation I had with him a few years ago. Uh, where we were talking about what this multi-ethnic kingdom truly looks like. I was lamenting a kind of for him a little bit that sometimes I feel like we've whitewashed, and I use that term in the literal sense, that we've whitewashed some of our modern musical worship and that if him and I were collaborating, which we have done over the years, that I would really want him to be true to himself, to incorporate the, the sounds and the stylings that were meaningful for him, the songs uh, that, he, uh, that he found meaning in uh, to him and to his heritage. And he said to me, he said, I've never had someone tell me that before. And my heart broke in that moment. Partly because I know that we, the church, have so often been unwilling to budge on our preferences for the sake of embracing the multi-ethnic kingdom of God. It's worth reminding if you weren't aware of this, but Christianity is the most culturally, racially, and ethnically diverse faith system of all time. This is amazing. This shows that the gospel of Jesus transcends all culture, all time, all differences. And Paul wants us to get in touch with this. He wants us to listen to our siblings that look differently than us, to hear their hopes and their dreams and their desires, and to honor the kingdom value that they bring. This is not simply Paul's vision for, for Ephesus uh, among Gentile believers. This is God's vision through Jesus for the church today. This is a good reminder, actually, that the scriptures say that Jesus won't return until every nation and tongue has heard the name of Jesus proclaimed. Church, this is a challenge today. This is a challenge to listen to our, our siblings from other ethnic and racial backgrounds, to educate ourselves, to lay down some of our preferences in favor of honoring other cultures and traditions. I can so easily get stuck in my own rut the same as everyone else. I can get comfortable. I can get complacent. But studying this passage and looking at the implications has just shook me to my core this week. So I challenge us in that. What does it look like to honor our siblings in Christ who come from different backgrounds and traditions and colors. All right, the next two are a little less heavy and also a little shorter too, but they're important nonetheless. So the unveiled mystery reveals the far-reaching nature of the gospel. And this is another powerful factor in the message of Jesus. The way, this way that grace is subversive and, and scandalous in some ways. It reaches further than we could ever imagine or than often that we would ever choose to reach. 
And you see that on full display with Paul here. He admits in this passage in Ephesians that he is less than the least of all the Lord's people. And I don't think that Paul was trying to be falsely humble. Paul was no doubt uh, immensely guilty. He felt this immense guilt over his past, his legalism, his oversight of uh, the killing of Christians. Paul recognizes that the grace extended to him in Jesus, who was, he was a co-conspirator in murder, is also extended to those who we least expect. This goes beyond just a conversation about the surprise that God saved Gentiles. This is a reminder that no one, no one is too far gone. No one is beyond the love of Jesus. And we're, we are the ones that so easily write people off. Those like Paul, who've received this incredible grace, are often the ones who truly understand grace. There's a woman who a number of years ago I had the honor of walking alongside and, and eventually uh, baptizing and sharing her story. Um, and I walked through a really challenging situation with her. Uh, years ago, her son had been relentlessly bullied in junior high. And on a particularly bad interaction, uh, he ended up uh, dying by suicide. Literally only 13 years old. The mom for years, she drowned her pain in alcohol before finally uh, joining Alcoholics Anonymous and getting sober. And it was six months into her sobriety where she started asking me, I don't know why, but she started asking me questions about Jesus. And her questions weren't necessarily um, related to, uh, you know, why did God allow this to happen? Why did my son die? It wasn't so much that, but it was about how she could ever begin to fully forgive or even kind of forgive these bullies who had led to her son's suicide. I recall uh, her telling me about her kind of working through some of the steps that you, uh, that you have to go through in Alcoholics Anonymous and other programs like that. And she was on the step where she was having to confront and work through forgiveness. And she was finding it very challenging and I don't blame her for a second. So I, so I spent time talking with her and praying, and I talked about Jesus's radical forgiveness and grace for us, and that it is, it is from receiving forgiveness and grace, and that, we are, that when we receive that forgiveness and grace, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to extend that to others, even when we don't think they deserve it. And that just struck a chord with her. She craved that deep in her soul. She didn't know how to get there yet, but she wanted that. And she said, I, I don't know how to do that, but I want your help. And, and in that moment, I prayed with her and she received Jesus as the Lord over her life. And she was able to learn over time to extend grace, even to the kids that led to her son's suicide. This is a picture of God's radical grace toward us. My wife, Lindsay, and I, we've been talking a lot about cancel culture these days. Cancel culture is this idea that the moment a celebrity and 
we're even seeing it in, in kind of Christian circles with Christian pastors and celebrities and whatnot, um, where their past or current sin is revealed and they are, uh, they are swiftly removed from the public eye, just kind of like that. I'm thinking particularly of people, maybe more obvious examples, someone like a Harvey Weinstein or Kevin Spacey, uh, who were basically removed from their platform immediately upon the revelation of their, uh, of their sin. Now, to be clear, especially when we look at some of those cases, there is a proper corrective that is taking place. Uh, there are many people that should genuinely have their platforms removed from them. Um, when pastors abuse their power, when celebrities are, are sexually coercive, there is no reason that they should be, uh, continue to be pastors or celebrities being extended grace or forgiveness does not necessarily mean restoration to your former glory. There are consequences to sinful behavior. But in our current cultural moment, as often happens, the pendulum can so easily swing too far the other way. You know, you say one wrong thing and you're canceled forever. We've seen this happen over and over again. And this, I believe, is devoid of God's grace. You know, I think upon my own life and things I've said and things I'm do I've done, and I'm so grateful that God didn't cancel me. <laughs> I'm glad that God didn't write off Paul and cancel Paul as a Christian killer. I'm glad that God is a God of second and third and fourth and so on chances. This is the far-reaching, radical countercultural and subversive nature of the grace of God available to all. This is the mystery that is revealed. Lastly, this unveiled mystery reveals the deep fellowship available to us with God. This is, I think, a beautiful place for us to, to end. That in verse 12, Paul says, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. So again, remember, he's speaking to Gentiles here. And some followers of God treated Gentiles as if they had no ability uh, to experience communion with God. The unveiled mystery here reveals that acts that through the grace of Jesus to all people, we have unhindered access to God. Because of the finished work of Jesus crucified and raised, all can come before God as a friend. And when you think about the way that you interact with a friend, we don't approach a friend groveling um, as if we don't deserve to be in their presence. In fact, we can't even, I would say, we can't properly have a friendship with that sort of shame and baggage weighing us down. Rather, Paul says we come before God with freedom, with confidence, with boldness. Maybe some of you in your understanding or experience of God, you have approached God like a distant or disinterested figurehead. Maybe you've approached God like an angry father. Maybe some of you approached God and you come before him with immense guilt or shame about who you are or what you've done. I want to say to you this morning that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us and it was not contingent on our goodness or our behavior. And that 
God looks at us and he extends his kindness toward us. God is a loving father. He loves us without condition. Through Jesus, we have unhindered, full access to the riches of God's kingdom. We receive the full inheritance. We are forgiven and loved, and we approach God boldly and confidently as both our father and our friend. Our heads are held high as adopted children of the creator of the universe. May we see our royal standing as heirs and friends before God the Father. May we live out the grace that has been poured out to us. May it be infused in all that we do. May it take on the form of loving our families and friends well, loving the marginalized well, loving those, even those who revile us well, and especially practically as we consider what it would look like to lay down our preferences and our desires to honor one another for the sake of the kingdom of God. May we do that well. And to all this, we say, Amen.